listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. We believe pharmacists are the best positioned providers to lead in PGX. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs. This relatively new field combines pharmacology and genomics to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a person's genetic makeup. This podcast is dedicated to pharmacists with an interest in learning more about the data analytics, industry trends, and evidence-based usage of pharmacogenomics. Welcome to PGX for Pharmacists, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Banas Sarami, your host to PGX for Pharmacists podcast on the largest pharmacy podcast in the nation and one of the top 20 podcasts in genomics globally. If you're new to the podcast, I'm a pharmacogenomics medical science liaison and a mentor to pharmacists. So connect with me on LinkedIn. Let's let's get started with conversations going. I want to hear from you, what you're thinking about and what you're doing with learning about PGX. And if you're needing a mentor, is you're trying to go beyond just reading a genetics report so you can show the value that you have. Clinicians can read the report themselves. So what makes pharmacists unique in this field? So I want to hear from you. PGX for Pharmacy's podcast is focused on learning the science behind PGX since that's where the missing gap is for both providers and pharmacists. And that's the missing gap, which is also going to push PGX into adoption. We also cover the business side of it along with reimbursement and, and more. So stay tuned for those episodes. So let's talk about post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, which is one of the most common psychiatric disorders, which affects about 8 million adults at some point in their lifetime in the U.S. But it's really not clear as to why some people experience traumatic events, um, that who experience traumatic events actually develop PTSD. Some people say it's a social construct, but in the largest and most diverse genetic study of PTSD to date, Um, scientists from University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, and more than 130 additional institutions participating in psychiatric genomics consortiums found that PTSD has a strong genetic component similar to other psychiatric disorders. So genetics seems to account for about five to ten, five to twenty percent of the variability in PTSD uh, risk following a traumatic event. So I'm going to put that link um, to the article in the show notes. But my guest today, and I'm so excited about, uh, she'll be able to tell us a little more about that. Dr. Larry Shapiro is a clinical psychologist that started back in 1990, but quote unquote, retired to become a financial advisor. He was having discussion with his brother one day, who was a career officer in the army returning from Afghanistan. So that made um, that made Dr. Shapiro rethink about his contribution to his community. So he got he got his license back. Um, trained in military trauma, and started again as a psychologist in 2014. He started at St. Louis Behavioral Medicine Institute, specializing in treatment of OCD, panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, simple phobias, depression, and combat combat trauma. Last year, he attended the annual Boston Trauma Conference 
and heard for the first time about the use of psychedelics, um, psychedelic medicine for treatment of trauma. So after 150 hours um, certification program at Integrative Psychiatric Institute, he became certified in psychedelic associated psycho um, psychotherapy, which now is part of his current practice. So just this year in January, he went into private practice so he can focus more on psychedelics. He's also an adjunct instructor in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis and a clinical consultant for psilocybin research at Health Minds Lab at, again, WashU. One more fun fact about Dr. Shapiro that that he has been married to the same person for 39 years. I know myself and other others want to know the secret to staying married that long, but I think that's for another podcast. So um, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking time to come to the podcast, Dr. Shapiro, and sharing your experience with us and how you evaluate your patients using pharmacogenomics testing potentially on some few. So I know a lot of people want to know your perspective as a clinician dealing with mental health and especially with um, PTSD. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. My first podcast. I'm excited. Oh, so so are we. So are we. Um, tell us what a normal day looks like uh, for Dr. Shapiro. So so we can kind of understand what mental conditions you see and its prevalence. So just walk us through that. So uh, before before the call, because I. I thinking that was going to be one of the questions, I actually pulled up my calendar for next week. And going through the day-to-day, um, I start seeing people at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I go till 7 o'clock at night, um, Monday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then I see people, you know, half days on Mondays and Fridays. I, you know, looking at uh, next week and looking at my whole book, I would say right now, roughly 30% of the people that I'm seeing, either I'm treating either for PTSD from combat or a spouse of someone who's married to someone who has combat trauma um, or first responders. So, so between, in, between that group, I'm gonna say roughly right now, about 30% of the people that I see have either combat-related PTSD or they're somehow related to, let's say, first responders related to PTSD, and then people involved on the periphery, spouses um, or, or kids living with uh, someone who has PTSD. Aside from that, the rest is kind of, it's interesting as, um, you know, I started introducing psychedelics into my practice. Um, you know, I've gotten a number of referrals for uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and I'm getting a lot more referrals and call-ins. So I'd say roughly right now, maybe upwards of 10% are coming to me specifically for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, either using ketamine or um, they're bringing their experiences with magic mushrooms or LSD uh, into treatment and working with them with that. The rest would be kind of more more general depression, um, anxiety, um, life changes couple of college students just recently graduating and trying to get a handle on their lives and being independent and being an adult for the first time. That, that's So that kind of summarizes in a day, it's going to be, let's say, roughly 30% is going to be combat trauma plus minus, then uh, anxiety disorders and these kind of, uh, and then uh, psychedelic related types of referrals. 
Yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing that. I know um, when it comes to mental health, it can be very debilitating debilitating for some people uh, to do day-to-day activities, depending on what condition they have. Um, why do you think it's so hard to treat mental health condition overall, since you see that all day? I actually don't think it's that hard. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's like any other profession. If you know what you're doing, it shouldn't be that hard. Um, so... You know, with combat trauma, the way that I developed the protocol to treat that was really based on what I heard from veterans when I first got back into, into therapy was all of the, the negative stories they had about their treatment experiences at the VA. So the more I listened to the, there was, there was a consistency in the complaints. So basic complaint, you show up for an appointment at 11 o'clock in the morning and you don't get seen till two o'clock in the afternoon. Like, well, okay. That means for me as a therapist, I need to show up for my appointments at least two minutes early. And, and something that's simple, for me, you'd be surprised how much, um, how much that buys you as a therapist when you actually treat people and say, you know, your time is just as valuable as mine. And so I'm going to make sure you get here on time. I'm going to get you in on time. So just uh, the, the timeliness, being able to get in. And then the, the primary treatments of PTSD at the VA are prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. Well, cognitive processing therapy is really kind of like cognitive behavior therapy, focusing on, you know, thoughts, beliefs, uh, Repetition, getting, getting stuck in your head with certain thoughts. Prolonged exposure, on the other hand, is uh, it's an exposure strategy where you're having people purposefully think about in detail the nature of the, 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 the trauma. Well, for some people, doing that right off the bat is too much. I mean, they've been trying to not think about these things for years. In the case of Vietnam veterans, they've been trying to not think about it for 50 years. Um, so to go into the VA and say, now I want you to just think about it. We're going to be here for about an hour. And as soon as we're done, I'm going to send you home. Well, even the VA's own studies suggest that there's an 87% dropout rate in prolonged exposure. So in that sense, it's not really an effective treatment if only 13% of the people stick it out. Um, so thinking about what their experiences were, it's like, okay, well, you know, we still need to get them to think about it. Um, but we don't have to do it in such a, an aggressive manner. And it, it, it struck me that you shouldn't be re-traumatizing people when you're trying to treat them for trauma. So I, I just, you know, listen more about what's going on. I listen to the spouses, which is another thing that the VA didn't do. And I still think they do a pretty poor job of, they don't bring spouses into any of the work. So, you know, if you're diagnosed with cancer, you're married, your, your cancer doctor is going to say, you need to bring your spouse in for a meeting because they're going to be living with this as well. So I insisted then that as people were coming in, that their spouses be involved. And if they have kids, if they're like 15 years and above, bring them in, bring them in if, if they feel like they're, those kids are being affected. And then the rest of the treatment really, really started <clears throat> by listening to the problems that the spouses were talking about and then developed a, um, an in vivo exposure, kind of like treating a phobia, an in vivo exposure protocol um, 
that was based around the uh, two, two primary concepts, or three. One, PTSD is an injury, not a mental illness. And for a lot of combat veterans, when you say, look, you're not mentally ill, you've been injured. That is That's a point. great point. That's a great point. I didn't, I would have never thought of it that way, I guess. Well, if you think about just in our more recent history, think about COVID and, you know, all the, the physicians, the nurses, the techs, the support staff, you know, all these people in, in emergency departments and ICU at the beginning of the pandemic, they're getting all these people in and they're dying horrible, lonely deaths. Mm -hmm. So these men, so these professionals are going in perfect, probably perfectly mentally healthy. And then at the end of it, they've a lot of them have developed PTSD. So what I, I reflected was like, well, do you think that those people are now mentally ill? Or would you say that they were scarred by their experience? Right? Yeah. And I love how you were saying that you involve the other family members as well, because that they go through the same process or they may be able to help the the person at home or other other places, I guess, or depending on what the situation. And also you're treating the whole person uh, as, as a, in a holistic approach, which is really important. So I can see why there needs to be maybe, maybe a little bit more added, um, you know, training to do what you're doing, um, right? So to understand what people go through and their experience to be able to really listen and help. Um, I'm assuming, I'm, you know, that that's a whole different level of when we talk about for example, depression, bipolar, I believe like this is a whole different level by itself based on what I'm hearing. It is, it's different. And, and also, and my thing is working with combat veterans or first responders, you also have to, as a, as a clinician, you have to have buy-in, right? People have to trust you. Definitely. Because um, they're, they're, with the PTSD, especially, you know, in some, some cases where guys will say, have said, you know, I know I committed war crimes. I know it. And they feel they feel horrible. They feel guilty, but they won't. They're not going to tell their spouse that they committed war crimes. They're not going to tell other people. But for me to be able to uh, be on this receiving end and say, well, okay, I'm not going to judge you for it. Let's hear it because we're probably going to need to talk about it more to to deal with the guilt associated with that. So you have to have you have to build with these with this group a, a different level of. You know, some I would say a bond because there are some there's some veterans who call me brother, which is a huge compliment. Yeah. Um, because they they understand that I understand. And when I say I understand, you know, and where the spouses sometimes come in is how are you actually living now with this? So I said there were there there were three primary um things that I work around. One is that PTSD is an injury, not a mental illness. Well, right off the bat, you guys' faces light up. It's like, you mean I'm not crazy? It's like, no, you're not crazy. You're injured. And, you know, I say, look, there's evidence that suggests that there actually are structural changes to the brains of people with chronic PTSD. So this is, in fact, an injury. And as such, you and I are not going to be doing therapy. We're going to be doing rehab. So, again, it's using the language of the military, language that they're comfortable with. Let's get away from mental illness and therapy. You've been injured. You need rehab. They're used to that. Yeah. Like, I blew out my knee. I need physical therapy. Yeah. I so, like the way you put it. I, I really do. It, it gives us a different perspective. And then that gives them buy-in. They're not threatened by what we're doing because we're not treating craziness. We're treating an injury. So that's key to kind of just get people to relax a little bit. The other two concepts are 
the relationship between warrior mentality and civilian society and their civilian life. So, uh, you know, I go through this and say, look, you know, the military does a wonderful job training warriors. You know, you go six weeks in basic training, you learn how to protect yourself and those around you, you get deployed, and depending upon where you're deployed, you learn additional strategies to protect yourself and those around you. And you develop a warrior mentality, which is great when you're in a combat area. But when you bring that warrior mentality back home, because it's out of context, what had been an adaptive coping strategy is now maladaptive. So that is such a true, powerful statement. You can actually apply that in any other category of your life, depending if you've had a traumatic event, right? You've had to fight. And I'm just making this very basic, uh, simplistic, any, any, you know, traumatic injury, you have to kind of adapt and cope and become this warrior, I guess, if you want to call it. And, but then it may not apply to other places in your life when that traumatic event is now over. So that's a really nice concept. And um, I appreciate you explaining that. Yeah. So, so this warrior mentality when they're, when people are out, I was like, so, and this was like thinking about pre COVID when you're out with your family, you and maybe your wife and maybe two or three kids, where do you walk relative to your family? And most of them will say, you know, Oh, I walk behind, obviously. Like now I know what they're going to say because they're walking behind because they're covering their six, they're covering the rear. And then they can, they can pie the area, scan the area in front of their family for any threat. So they're covering the threat from behind and they're scanning in front for any threats that might be coming at them. But what that then means is they're disengaged from their family. Right? Or they go yeah. into the store and the veteran will stay outside the store, in essence, standing guard, making sure that their family is going to be safe and keeping an eye on anybody who might be going to the store who could look dangerous. So there, and that's kind of a simple, you know, just one of the simple ones, you know, when you're, when you're with your family, um, not so again, very simple, but people don't think about it. Veterans rarely carry things in their right hand. They don't, when I mention it, I was like, do you ever carry, when you go to the grocery store, do you ever carry bags in your right hand? Do you ever hold your spouse's hand with your right hand? And they think, I was like, no, actually I don't. Hmm. Um, and in part, that is because they were trained their right hand, two things. One is they need their right hand available always in case they need to salute and in case they need to access their sidearm. And so they still keep doing this and they're not necessarily aware of it. So that's part of that warrior mentality. Uh, going into a stadium, it's not that they're worried about crowds. It's they can't do proper threat assessment with 35,000 people because they can't check under everybody's coat. They can't check everybody's bag. Wow, so that's that's pretty amazing. Like I'm thinking as I as you walking us through this, like who would ever have thought that? Like, you know what I mean? Like that is that's really amazing to put in that perspective. And so you got all this by the um educational or the 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 program that you wanted to learn or really like I feel like you had to be there to go through that trauma to come back and you you had to be in it to be able to understand all these so I can see why again uh, uh and I say this uh, with respect with typical quote-unquote uh, clinician uh, like a clinician or psychiatrist however you want to call it may not be able to tr um you know treat uh, accordingly, because I don't know if anybody, everybody thinks this way when they see a patient with PTSD. So, it, well, this is kind of my approach with everybody, but part of it is 
it, it's what the concept, I think um, you might have even put up an article about this um, before, that it's one thing put, putting yourself in somebody's shoes. It's another thing putting yourself in somebody's head. Most people, when they say, oh, yeah, like if I was in that person's shoes, I would do this, 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 and this. Well, to me, what that means is you have no idea what you're talking about. Because if you actually put yourself in that person's head and you had the same thoughts that that person had, you would do exactly the same thing. If I'm walking around and I'm constantly looking around because my amygdala is enlarged from all the excess blood flow and glucose because of, because of the trauma, and in my head, I'm thinking, I have to look out for threats against my family. I have to look out for threats that are coming from outside into my home. Well, once you understand that somebody has that thought or the general belief system, all the rest is easy. You can predict all the behaviors. Very so, well said. Very well said. I think you're, ta you're talking about, um, and we had this discussion before, mentalization is different than empathy, uh, right? So I think that's the concept you're talking about. And maybe I will actually put that in the show notes because I, I don't think I knew mentalization and the, the true meaning of it is really putting someone, putting yourself in someone's mindset before even you figure out how they feel. So it's, it's a little step before empathy comes, right? Um, and, and, and you need to actually have that step. Of, and, you know, yes, there's empathy, but you can have too much empathy and then you get lost as a clinician. So yeah. my job is to try to stay objective. So, if I, so I understand that the way that people think, like with regards to the, the combat stuff, I understand that the way they think has a perfect logic. The problem is the logic is based on irrational assumptions. Can you say that could be a cognitive distortion? It's, well, it's a cognitive distortion. They're not aware of it. So, But all cognitive distortions still make perfect sense. Yes, as a person thinking it, that's true. Right? Right. If I, right? If I like treating a, a person for a fear of heights, they're not afraid of heights. They're afraid of falling from a height because a lot of people with a fear of heights still fly in airplanes. So it can't huh. be that you're really afraid of heights. A true, someone who's really afraid of heights is actually afraid of somehow accidentally tumbling out of a window. Yeah. So if I know the person is saying, I'm afraid of falling out of a window, well, then it makes sense that they could go up to the 100th floor in the Empire State Building. They just won't get out of the elevator. I get it. So is it, so with, with the, the veterans, it's like, if you maintain this idea that there's threat everywhere and that it was drummed into you in basic training and then when you're deployed, always be aware of your surroundings because you never know. When you let your guard down, if you let your guard down, if you stop paying attention, people get hurt and killed. So if you pull that mentality into your back into your civilian life, then it makes perfect sense that you yeah. would be suspicious of almost everybody you run into. Yeah, and an anxiety level would be running up the roof. For sure. Yeah. If you had to every time go out, nah, yeah, yeah. now I can see it. Now I can see what you're talking about. Right. And so then the next one, this warrior civilian mentality is the connection being a FOB or forward operating base in your house. So when you go to your, your forward operating base, whether it's, you know, Iraq, let's just use Iraq as an example, and you're inside the wire, you're inside the base, you can eat, you can catch some sleep, you can shower. 
You're never relaxed though. You can be comfortable because you know people are looking out for you and you know people are guarding and there's a fence, but you're never relaxed. When you go home, people, these, a lot of these guys treat their house like a fob. They lock the doors, they check, they check the locks constantly. They um, either close the blinds all over their house so people can't look in, so they can't be targeted, or they keep all the blinds open so they can look out to make sure they can see anybody, potential enemy or threat approaching their house. Um, they might keep multiple weapons hidden around their house. They can they booby trap or set, you know, set indicators like taping doors or putting balls behind doors that would give them an indication while they're out if anybody was in, they might set up all of these things around the house that let them know. When they come back home, after being out, a lot of guys, they'll go through the house and they'll sweep their house room to room to room to room until it's clear and then have their family come in. So they actually treat their wow. house like a fob. Yeah. Um, keeping it, and so when you understand that, it's like everything else, all the behaviors flow from that. And it makes perfect sense. And so mm -hmm. if someone is saying, you know, I sit in my one chair and I sit there by myself, I only sit in this one location. I know they're sitting there because that place for them has the best view of the front door, a window, a hallway, and maybe there's some glass like in a window or, or a curio cabinet that they're using for the reflective surface to look over their shoulder. And really what they're doing is they're posting up in their own house. Yeah. And so they have to say, look, you got to keep the you got to keep the TV volume down. And some people, some of these people will watch TV with no volume. They'll just keep the um, they'll just keep the subtitles on so that they're able to hear. Is there a potential threat coming to my house? Oh, my God, that's a that's a lot. That's a lot going in their head. I that that is a lot. Right. But once you understand all of these things. And, you, you know, you can conceptualize it that way, then the approach I take is, OK, look. There is no way that you're going to be comfortable anywhere if you can't be comfortable in your own home. So the goal, um, the stated goal of rehab in PTSD is to be able to go wherever you want, whenever you want, comfortably. Because a lot of them will go wherever they have to, when they have to, but they're muscling through it or they're white knuckling through. And if you can't, and I tell, I tell them, if you can't, Throw the, depending on how you think, throw the blinds open, put your earbuds in, blast some music, lay down on your couch, close your eyes and take a nap. Because that's what civilians do. We got to get you to that point in your house before we start getting you comfortable outside. Yeah. So, so therefore, we start, I start with them this way, doing that kind of behavioral rehab. And once they're comfortable in their house, then I get them out in their backyard, their front yard, their neighborhood. And then once I can get them to the supermarket, because the supermarket is a great location to do this kind of work, because there are all these different smells. There are people they don't know. There are people coming up around corners. You can't see over the top of the aisles. Um, you might have to stand in line. Most people treat going to the supermarket then as a mission. I've got five, no more than five things on my shopping list. I know exactly where they are. I'm going to back my truck in at the end of the parking lot in case there's an emergency. I can pull right out. I don't have to worry about backing out of a space. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to get the five. I'm going to go self-checkout. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to check my watch to see how much time I actually took. And I'm going to go home. And so they treat grocery shopping as a mission. Oh. 
I feel like now, I feel like now that when I go out, I'm going to look at things differently just because of that. I have this new thought process, just you are educating us on in a good way. Right. So, but so in that sense, now that I've laid that out, the treatment is actually fairly straightforward and pretty easy. Yeah, I can see that now. Right. And then once you're comfortable and then I say, now we've got to get to the part where we're talking about the trauma. But now they can do it in the comfort of their own home where they're actually comfortable. Not, yeah. in, not in an office at the VA or not in an office like at my old clinic. You're going to do this really hard work in the comfort and safety of your own home. And, and I break it down. Instead of doing the all, you know, just shove your memory back, you know, back up. I, I said, look, we're going to break it down because traumatic memories are different than, than working memory. Right, traumatic memories. You've got the visual; it's kind of obvious. But what you were thinking at the time of the trauma gets encoded in the memory. What you were feeling at the time, the emotional response, gets encoded in the memory, and all of the sensations that were engaged get encoded in the memory. Which is why anything can trigger an unwanted memory. So that's true, right? So we right. Break, we break down the memory into those components. I just want you to give me a factual accounting. Period. The chain of command didn't really care what you thought about it. They don't really care how you felt about it. They don't care what you smell. They just want to know what happened. So we break it down into those various components, but I have them use this the strategy of saying, look, there's the content which is distressing, but for some people, even more distressing is the uncontrolled nature of when they have them. So we got to practice starting a memory and stopping it and starting it and stopping it and starting it and stopping it. Again, kind of this rehab model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So you start writing and on a subjective units of distress, so 10, one, 10 being a panic attack, one, you're, you're perfectly comfortable. You get to a five, I'm telling them, I want you to close it up and walk away. Even if you've only written one or two sentences, it's fine. Because we want to disconnect the memory from the physical reaction to it. And we want them to be able to practice starting and stopping so it becomes more volitional. Um, and, it, and it appears to them to be less out of control. Well, that's a beautiful work you're doing with, with everyone. I, and I we all appreciate what you're doing. You're really saving lives and family and, um, you know, jobs and a lot on a, every single day. Uh, you really are. Um, can, can you tell us about that one patient that... Um, we've talked about that yeah. you found that might be valuable to do a PGX test and w- how she came to you and what your thoughts were and what, why you thought a genetic testing will be uh, valuable. Talk us through that. Well, to, to, to preface that, you know, before you, um, one of the things that I noticed about veterans in particular was they would come to me after being treated at the VA and so many of them were coming on multiple medications so the one that, that, that we were working on was just one of many. Um, uh, you know, it was unbelievable. People coming in on 10, 15, I think the most, I think the most I saw was 22. That's crazy, insane. Right. And the other crazy part of it is I could not find a physician to do anything about it. No one physician was willing to take responsibility. For any other medication, for any medications that any other physician prescribed. Yeah, I can see that. I've heard that a lot. So it was very, very frustrating for me to say, oh my God, I don't even know what I'm treating here. Am I treating PTSD or am I treating 
some kind of weird drug interaction because I'm not a pharmacist, but you know, every once in a while I'll look up drug interactions, but I know that the stuff online, you're comparing two medications, but how do you look at 10, 15, or 20 and understand what the potential interactions are there? So, so for me, the idea of how, how, do, how am I going to treat people if I don't know what I'm treating? So when this person came in, I think she might've been on upwards of 10 or 15 medications. Um, and she was originally referred for PTSD, mili actually military sexual trauma, but she also had a long uh, a history of childhood uh, physical abuse uh, at home. So she was talking, and, she's like, and she was saying, you know, yeah, I don't know how many mailboxes I've destroyed because I just don't know what I'm doing or I don't know where I'm going. She was on medication, you know, well, you know, taking medications. It's like, wait a minute, that's for narcolepsy. You're taking medication for narcolepsy. You're falling asleep, but you're on all these other sedating medications. And that's when I was like, oh, my God, you know, it just gets frustrating. So you can tell that whoever was prescribing was prescribing medications to deal with the side effects of the medications that they had prescribed earlier, which weren't really doing anything for the PTSD anyway. So for me, it was when I ran this by a couple of physicians, most of the physicians were like, yeah, this is malpractice, but they weren't willing to take it. So I was routinely referring patients to their pharmacist. Even before you and I started speaking, I would routinely refer people to their pharmacist. Like, listen, you got to get somebody to look at this mess. And I think the best person to look at this is going to be your pharmacist, not your doctor. I just don't know how many pharmacists at the time, whether it's a small local pharmacist or the, the local CVS or Walgreens, whether or not they had access to any of the genetic testing. So once I found out that that was available, I was like, man, if I'm going to treat the whole person I may be a psychologist, but I got to get the medication issue straightened out. Otherwise, I can't work with these people because I don't know what I'm treating. And, and so that's why, you know, I, I was referring, you know, for the genetic testing, because not only the genetic testing, like how are they metabolizing these medications and what's going to work with and, and what may not or what might work better, it's going to get the, the physician to start thinking differently about how they're using the medications. And maybe opens their eyes to say, well, maybe there are some medications that I can actually, you know, maybe withdraw or, or change. So I just saw it as like, you know, as we're doing more targeted, more targeted therapies, why would you not do this? Um, and yeah. frankly, I actually, actually had a call the other day, somebody who was referred for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, and we were, he was talking about the use of mushrooms. And he brought up this idea, it's like, you know, I don't respond to medication. I've been told I'm a, I'm a fast metabolizer. I was like, well, look, before we get into any of this talk, um, I want you to reach out to, I said, I want you to reach out to Ben, you know, Ben Oz. I gave him your content for me. I want you to reach out to this person because if you're being told you're a fast metabolizer, you're going to work with mushrooms. I have no idea how that gets, how that gets tested, but maybe you should just find out rather than just keeping drug after drug after drug. Why don't you just get the testing done and find out maybe what's going to work better for you up front rather than the trial and error approach? Yeah. So, so for this particular woman, I, I forget how many she uh, how many medications she's on now. It's a lot less, but 
far less suicidal. She's running her farm. She got a, she got a, a job um, also that where she's interacting with the public. She's going to church on a regular basis. She just went on a, on a, on a trip to visit friends. So from the, the time I saw her to now, and then getting, and I think really the clarity was getting her off of and really, really fixing her medication schedule. Yeah. In the absence of being able to, in the absence of that, there's no way she would have made the progress that she's made. She was too lethargic. She was too confused. She was too unmotivated. She, it, it was just, it was awful. It was awful to look at. So it just made my job a lot easier. Now it's like, oh, okay, now I know what I'm dealing with. And then we can work on the protocol. And, you know, her life has almost done a 180. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. It, it really, I know, who, uh, you know, I have spoken with her. So it's it's really, it's nice to have those really dramatic changes and her, her actually going, getting back to her life. It, it really makes a huge difference. And so, uh, and, and that was my other thing I was going to ask you, how you see pharmacists working alongside you if you had one right in your practice, but you already answered a lot of that question as well already. So, yeah. Yeah, I, and I uh, again, I think you know personally, you know, I, I think if I if I if I hadn't seen so many people coming in on polypharmacy, I may not have thought about utilizing pharmacists. But once I started seeing how prevalent it was, at least in the veteran community at the time, and that physicians were not willing to do anything about it, I also understood that realistically, that's not even their job is to be able to understand all those drug interactions that the real professional to help me there is going to be a pharmacist, not a physician. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, uh, you know, a, a teamwork always is better. So you can have the individual you guys treating on uh, behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy, uh, however way you do that. And then, uh, you know, helping alongside you would be a pharmacist that knows their medications and interactions and pathways. And, you know, interdisciplinary, you know, team is always um, is always best. And I've always advocated for that, for yeah. sure. And early in my training, when I was actually still in graduate school, I worked at a, a day treatment facility. Uh, in the Sunset District in San Francisco. And the the head pharma, there was actually a head pharmacist actually at the day hospital. Um, and I, I can't remember his name, I remember his face, but he also ran therapy groups. So not only were people coming in to get their depot medications, um, you know, and their and their oral medications from him, but he was actually running groups. And they weren't, he wasn't running groups about medication. He was running groups about their mental health. Now, these people were very, very, I mean, a, a day hospital in the Bay Area at that time after deinstitutionalization. I mean, we're talking about some really, really, really impaired people, really impaired. Um, that, But it was a deinstitutionalization period. And like I said, at the time in, in the Bay Area, pharmacists were doing where I was, they were doing therapy. They were also allowed to um, instigate a 72-hour hold if they thought it was necessary. Yeah. Well, that is a really amazing story about that one patient. I know that's just not the only one. I know you probably see a lot. Um, but is there any other stories that you want to um, share about when um, you had a patient that come in and you're like, I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you determine this 
individual that you're seeing outside of multiple medications, that would be a good candidate for you doing a genetic testing. How do you figure that piece of it out? If someone tells me that they come in and they say they've tried all these all these medications, they've let's say they tried all of the SSRIs, and we know you only really need to try two, and if you fail both, you, using the other three or four or five aren't going to do anything. But if someone is just not responding to anything, medication-wise, first I might think, well, not everybody responds to medication, so that's that part, and not all psychiatric medications. You know, we know like like the SSRIs maybe 30% of the population get really good response. Another two thirds are gonna get moderate to nothing, but a lot of side effects. But if someone's saying, I've tried everything, I was like, well, that would be one of those cases, like you might wanna consider genetic testing to see how you're metabolizing these medications and are there classes of medications that may work better as opposed to, again, going back year, and because it's a long-term process. Right. If you're saying it's going to take six to eight weeks to know whether or not an SSRI is going to work, and then another, let's say, four weeks, if you're going to add and add and add and add, by the time you figure out, well, this is going to work, you could be six months in. That's absolutely correct. Well, then why not just get it all done up front? Yeah. So, so that would be a reason if someone's saying nothing works. Like, well, we got to then, we got to get you tested. Really, for, frankly, Ben, the, the hardest part about it is while I've made a number of recommendations and referrals, the hardest part is actually getting the patients to follow through hmm. uh, because a lot of times they're sheepish about going back to their physician because in some ways they're, they're worried that, I think what's going on is they're worried that they're questioning their doctor. I can see that. Um, hey, nothing's working. Can we try this? You know, most people don't advocate for themselves nearly enough with their medical providers the way that they should be. That is uh, very correct. Right. So I think if people were more, you know, felt better about advocating for themselves when I said, hey, I think you need to talk to your doctor about this. Um, or, you know, here's Banaz's information, get in touch with her. I think they're just intimidated um, in part by questioning their position. Mm -hmm. Some are worried about the cost. I'm like, well, that's, you know, you got to ask the questions. But absolutely. Of, right. And then I guess a couple have run into situations where their physician just poo pooed the idea. <laughs> and then it just got, then it just got dropped. Yeah. Right. So I'm finding that there's, you know, getting buy in from patients is tough, or maybe not getting buy in from patients, but getting patients to advocate for themselves. And not just advocate, but because this is a, an area where they're saying, I know you're like, I know you're trying your best, doctor, but we've got to get away from people to say, you know what, I'm coming to you because you have knowledge that I don't. My insurance company is paying you to give me that knowledge and help me out here. Um, and be okay by just asking questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really right now the, the hard part. Yep, exactly. That is. Uh, we have to have you have, we have to come, have you come back. 
Dr. Shapiro. It's been su such education, at least for me, I know for listeners as well. Um, I don't think one, one session or one podcast is enough. Um, I hope you come back. I hope this was fun. You said this is the first one. I hope you do come back and share um, patient stories and educate us on uh, the types of mental health conditions you treat and how, and, you know, us, give us a different mindset. I know there's pharmacist majority listening, but there's also a lot of other professionals listening on here that they can learn. So I hope you do decide to come back um, and share your story. But I wanted to give you um, the platform to see if there's one takeaway or two. I know we, we had a lot that you want listeners to take away from our discussion and learn. Uh, what would that be? Ooh. Um, I know you have many. <laughs> all right. So I guess the, the one, one of the things that I guess it would be great for people to understand is um, the brain is an organ. And people do not treat their brains as an organ. They treat it as a brain. So that um, they don't have a problem saying, I'm going to treat my heart. I'm going to treat my liver. I'm going to treat my kidney. I'm going to treat my lungs. I'll take whatever medication. I'll do whatever rehab, do whatever to keep those, you know, those internal organs healthy. People have to start thinking about their brains as an organ that sometimes doesn't work well, an organ that sometimes gets injured, an organ that sometimes gets sick. The analogy that I use for people is like, if you want, if you're sitting at home, you're like, you know what? I want a really good cheeseburger. Then you're saying, all right, you know what? I'm going to go out to the, to the local bar and I'm going to get a really good cheeseburger. But you don't say, I'm going to go to McDonald's to get a quarter pound of good cheese. Now, on the other hand, sometimes you might say, you know what? I'm in the mood for a quarter pound of good cheese. You're not going to go to the corner bar and get a hamburger with cheese. You're going to go to McDonald's to get a quarter pound of good cheese. Technically, a quarter pound of good cheese is a cheeseburger. But no one thinks about it as a cheeseburger. It's a, it, they think about it as a quarter pounder with cheese. People need to think of their brain as a quarter pounder with cheese. It is still technically an organ. It's an organ, and you got to treat it just as sensitively as you treat all the other organs in your body. Don't treat it differently. It's actually the most important organ, but you got to think of it as an organ that gets disrupted just like any other organ in our body. That's very well said. Yes, it is the number one. I, I love that. Next time I have a cheeseburger, I'll have to think about that, which is lunchtime. So it's making me hungry. But that is true because really everything starts with the brain, right? You you uh, think before you feel. So every, that's a really important organ. Everything starts there. So that's a very nice analogy. I think it's very relatable and we can all remember that. And I appreciate you. So um, I appreciate you coming on again. Like I said, we have to have you back, um, hopefully another podcast but thank you everyone else for listening to the continuing education division of pharmacy podcast network that's powered by convey med download the convey med app podcast app and subscribe to um, subscribe so you can listen to all our podcasts there's no other place to go for all your pgx needs we do a lot of pgx and on here the science the business the reimbursement piece and um, patient story, just like Dr. Shapiro just did. We want to hear from you. So let us know what you think uh, by leaving us a review and let us know what you want to hear more on our next episode. Thanks for your interest in PGX and for spending some time with us. Please share this podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
For all of our episodes, please visit pgx4rx.com. That's pgx4rx.com.